1: The text this week is Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 47. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly, I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward.
2: And now having read our gospel text, we take a quiet moment to open our hearts to God, to ourselves, and to each other. And whatever you bring into this moment, it could be lots of faith, it could be lots of doubt, it could be lots of joy or sorrow. Just bring your full self to this moment and let's ask God to help us become more loving human beings. Quiet moment. God, help us now. Give us the grace we need to face our lives, to face our world, with the courage of Jesus' story and Jesus' wisdom. Amen. Well, we are so grateful last week that Drew Jackson was with us, and he did not disappoint. I'm so grateful for his friendship. But today, I want to talk to you about love and boundaries. You know, Mary Douglas recounts tells the story of Saint Catherine of Siena, how she felt a deep tension as she cared for the sick and wounded. She was repulsed by the wounds and she ultimately came to believe that hygiene was incompatible with mercy. And so in a radical, disgusting act, she said to have drank from a bowl of pus. It's disgusting. But it's that tension that I want us to focus on today. There are two themes in tension in the gospel stories about Jesus And they're difficult to understand, and they're certainly difficult to resolve. On the one hand, you have Jesus clearly preaching love, preaching peace, preaching reconciliation and forgiveness and grace and inclusion and embrace. That's the theme of the last three verses of our gospel reading, right? Six times in three verses, Jesus uses the word welcome as both a mandate and as a sign that God's kingdom is coming. He gives an example of such welcome. He says, the simple act of offering the relief of a cold cup of water to one of the least of these is a sign of that welcome. But on the other hand, you have Jesus saying and doing things like he does at the beginning of this gospel text. In verse 34, he says, quote, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, End quote. So to many of us, That's a serious shift from the Jesus that's caricatured in most of our imaginations. Or again, he quotes the prophet Micah in verse 35 For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter in law against her mother in law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then, even harder words. Jesus says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me whoever finds their life will lose it whoever loses their life for my sake will find it end quote you have welcome on the one hand and you have division On the other. Now how do we make sense of Jesus here? Especially for this moment when people are throwing Christian stories and language all over our problems, whether it's the pandemic or it's this movement of racial justice that's unfolding in front of our eyes. Jesus is seen to be violating boundaries. He's seen to be crossing borders. He's seen to be stepping across the lines that had been hardened in the concrete of Israel's view of life and God. We see lots of examples of Jesus doing this, whether he's cleansing the lepers or eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. What is Jesus doing here? He's reframing the very idea of sin. He begins to look at the boundaries themselves as problematic and he begins to reframe sin as exclusion. Together, this sort of exclusive holiness and the boundaries and the systems that enforce that sense of holiness are seen from the perspective of Jesus as something that needs to be challenged and something that needs to be dismantled. Miroslav Volf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, says this, quote, an advantage of conceiving sin as the practice of exclusion is that it names as sin what often passes as virtue, especially in religious circles. In the Palestine of Jesus' day, sinners were not simply the wicked, who were therefore religiously bankrupt, but also they were social outcasts. They were people who practiced despised trades, Gentiles and Samaritans, those who failed to keep the law as interpreted by a particular sect. A quote-unquote righteous person had to separate herself from the latter, and their presence defiled because they were defiled jesus table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners a fellowship that indisputably belonged to the central feature of his ministry offsets this conception of sin since he was who was innocent sinless and fully within god's camp transgressed social boundaries that excluded outcasts and these boundaries themselves were seen as evil sinful and outside of god's will by embracing the outcast, Jesus understood the sinfulness of the persons and systems that cast them out, end quote. Right, Jesus is offsetting a conception of sin as boundary maintenance, as purity obsession. He's taking the focus off of unclean people or groups, and he's putting it squarely on the boundaries that divide us into clean and unclean, into righteous and sinner, into insider and outsider. As Richard Beck says, quote, holiness demands boundaries and quarantine, and Jesus' ministry of table fellowship was dismantling these boundaries and it was breaking that quarantine. End quote. Now this is not a surprise, because Jesus is building on a prophetic tradition here. There was, after all, a really huge tension in the Hebrew Bible between the priests and the prophets. We see the prophets constantly problematizing the conception of sin and holiness that the priests put forward. Walter Brueggemann, a Hebrew Bible scholar, sums this up as the tension between purity and justice. According to the prophets, God demands justice over purity and mercy over sacrifice. Right? Consider the prophet Amos and his words, quote, I hate I despise the religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. End quote. Or consider the prophet Hosea. He says, "For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings." As Walt Brueggemann goes on to say, this purity and justice trajectory—they serve very different sensibilities, and they live in profound tension with each other. The tradition of justice concerns the political and the economic life of the community and it urges drastic transformation and rehabilitative activity. But the tradition of holiness focuses on the cultic life of the community, and it seeks a restoration of lost holiness, whereby the presence of God can be enjoyed and counted on, end quote. Right? This isn't a tension that needs balance. These two are increasingly seen as intrinsically incompatible instincts when it comes to God and life. It's a tension that spills over into the time of Jesus and the gospel stories. Israel is seen as needing to choose which way to go. The gospel stories present Jesus as one who is resolving this tension. And Jesus doesn't propose a balance. Jesus takes a side. New Testament scholar Mark Bello describes these two rival conceptions of sin as that of sin as pollution and sin as debt. Right? They correspond nicely to the categories of purity and justice. Now, when it comes to this purity idea where sin is pollution, Bellow says the posture at its core is always defensive. It wants to protect against everything that does violence to order and form. Right? Even at the primal level, level of misshapen or misformed bodies, it extends beyond as a metaphor of misshapen behaviors and the response is always the same to isolate to quarantine and to protect it's this defensive instinct that had three centers uh, he points out there's the table there's the house or my family and there's the sanctuary and Jesus is seen in the Gospels as challenging this conception of sin by taking the purity center of the table and allowing the sort of unclean into that family space Jesus is seen to be reversing the direction and the power of pollution think back to the story of Jesus cleansing the leper he's shown to cleanse rather than be polluted and he's seen as more powerful than that fragile purity conception of sin for Jesus contact with an outsider or an enemy cleanses it doesn't pollute Jesus gets into this debate at a table where his inclusion of someone unclean at the table creates some outrage. And they get in this debate about pollution and the source of pollution, right? And Jesus, he re-centers the debate. He says, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but what comes from the heart. And then he gives this list of behaviors that sit squarely in that category of sin as debt right or sin as a violation of justice the list points us to the justice instinct of the prophets bolo says quote it's the heart inside and the evil machinations outside which are the things that really pollute humanity the list of the evils belongs to the debt system right theft murder adultery avarice and the others are basically variants that can be put under the banner of those four a fact it's already indicated by the seat assigned to them, namely the heart." And in the words of Wolff, sin is here the kind of purity that wants the world cleansed of the other, rather than the heart cleansed of the evil that drives people out by calling those who are clean, unclean, and by refusing to help make clean those who are unclean. To put more formally, sin is the will to purity. It's turned away from the spiritual life of the self to the cultural world of the other. Wow. Jesus is trying to see the gates of hell we need to storm isn't out there somewhere. It's in our very hearts. Right? The place where the source of violence and exclusion originates. Jesus transforms the notion of pollution and purity. In Matthew's gospel, we hear Jesus saying, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And in Luke, we hear Jesus take that same phrase and switch it to mercy. He says, be merciful as your father is merciful. He's seen to be transforming this notion of pollution and purity. For Jesus, mercy is the new perfection. Inclusion is the new purity. Exclusion is the new pollution. And mercy is the new holiness right mercy is the suspension of disgust it's the suspension of that visceral impulse to push out or to exclude in the face of disgust god's love abounds and it reaches out right while we were sinners christ died for us in this way of jesus that dies for sinners that loves enemies that welcomes the sinner at the table that touches the leper that disregards holiness protocols. Right? It's this way that swims upstream in culture. It isn't natural. Richard Beck in his book, Unclean, does an amazing job at showing that this isn't about ideas. This is about visceral habits and reactions. Right? The church can't just tell people to be loving and to be welcoming. They have to prepare people, we have to prepare people, for the psychological dissonance that follows. That's what Jesus is doing in our text. He is preparing his disciples. He has sent them out. He's told them that this ministry of care and inclusion and receptivity, it will be resisted. It will be experienced as unholy, as unclean, as if you were to spit into someone else's cup. And so he prepares them. He tells them that this act of love and inclusion and care and hospitality will be like a sword that divides It will throw family systems into turmoil. It will infuriate the gatekeepers of the purity codes and the purity systems. Why? Because this impulse to love and welcome all seems to cut against the deeper loyalties that we take for granted. Our families, our religions, our ethnicities, our genders, our sexualities and nationalities and personality types. Jesus knows that to get to the peace with a capital P We have to die to the smaller pieces that we forge that create outsiders and victims it will mean in the words of our gospel to lose our lives now i think we see these instincts alive and well and firing on all cylinders today in the midst of a pandemic and a racial justice movement when it comes to pandemic the concrete issues of purity and pollution are staring us right in the face, right? Quarantine and separation, they're literally dominating our landscape. We're face to face with the experience of what Dr. Rosen calls core disgust. And this is good, it's normal, it protects us. But where we're being challenged is when the virus doesn't seem to be affecting me or my people. Then I become, or t- am tempted to become lax to violate the purity codes that have been set in place. But this isn't for the vulnerable outsider as Jesus violated those codes, right? It's often to get back to some form of normal for me and for mine. We're tempted to sacrifice the outsider, the other, the one who isn't necessarily in my circle of care, the immunocompromised, the elderly. The Jesus way here prioritizes the weak and it prioritizes the vulnerable, the ones who are at a decided disadvantage. And it asks us to reverse the sacrificial mindset of purity and pollution. It asks us to sacrifice ourselves for them. Now, when it comes to racial justice, I think we're seeing a huge clash of instincts. Those who value order and form are troubled by the looting or the overt challenge to police who are seen as protecting the order. And those who value justice we troubled by the consistent pattern of vulnerable people and communities being hurt and killed and exploited and taken advantage of and subjugated and discriminated against. Now, what would Jesus do? I think in all this, the Jesus lens is helpful because it helps us see something important. Right? How is power operating here? Who's in charge? Who's hurting? Who's being excluded? You see, Jesus could zoom out and he could see wider patterns and practices at work. To rebel against the Pharisees and the scribes and to protest the temple system through the Palm Sunday march and through the turning of the tables. like Jesus is showing us that sometimes order needs to be resisted if it's propping up injustice and exclusion and violence. How Jesus did this, though, was important. There were others, after all, who wanted to challenge the religious and political structures of his time, and they did it violently. But Jesus would say consistently, Satan can't cast out Satan. You can't defeat the problem of exclusion through exclusion. You can't defeat the problem of violence with violence. You can't defeat the problem of injustice through injustice. If that's your approach, then it simply becomes this political or military endeavor where you do everything you can to get power so that your way wins. Jesus saw a different path, a different path to victory altogether. Not a purely political solution focused on getting power, but a moral solution that focused on winning the imagination of people. Gaining the upper hand, so to speak, by taking the high ground. Jesus spoke the truth to power, both in Rome and in Jerusalem, and it cost him his life. He knew this would happen, but he was prepared for it. The disciples would face similar opposition. They would eventually be killed uh, as well, with the exception of John, who ends up on an island in exile at the end of his life. Do you see the tension? This welcoming, this love, this peace, this inclusion, it upsets the foundations of society the foundations of how we think about family and identity. It's truly upside down, and it's against our normal instincts. But it wins our imaginations when we see it in action. It won the imaginations of the disciples as they watched Jesus' life and death. It won the imaginations of countless poor, lepers, sick, oppressed, prisoners, strangers. And it occasionally won the imagination of the rich and powerful, but it was harder for them because they had more invested in the status quo and Jesus said as much. Right now, the cry of black Americans is reaching our ear at fever pitch and I ask you, will we listen? Will we who benefit from the status quo be willing to take action that could mean giving something up? Giving up power, giving up money, giving up status? Will we sit down and be humble in this moment? How will the spirit of Jesus move us together to be good news and to embody this spirit of love and peace, which does confront and does divide at times, but it does so for the bigger picture of unity which Jesus cast, the new humanity where there is no distinction, where God welcomes all to the table. May we be a people who can embody that, who can be stretched and grown, and may God continue to help us unlearn and dismantle those instincts toward purity and pollution, which get in the way of God's love. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Good Shepherd New York podcast. Good Shepherd New York is an interdenominational church centered around the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Our church is theologically rooted in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds, but we welcome people of any or no religious backgrounds to participate in our community. If you would like to support us, please text Good Shepherd NY, all lowercase with no spaces, to 77977. That's Good Shepherd NY to 77977 or visit our website, goodshepherdnewyork.com. Thank you for listening.